Welcome to the Vineyard Altoona podcast. If you have any questions or just want more information, you can visit our website at vineyardaltuna.org or any of our social media platforms at Vineyard Altoona. Good morning. As Elliot said, I'm Mike. Um, everybody looks familiar, so I think I know everyone here. But if not, um, my name is Mike Andrews. Uh, the entire preaching team is out of town this week, so they called up the water boy for fifth string quarterback. So here I am. So just out of curiosity, how many people do New Year's resolutions? Okay, yeah, some of you. I never do. I why wait for a specific day to start something new. Start immediately. That's always my two cents worth. So today I'm going to be reading from John chapter 8, verses 2 to 11. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst. They said to him, Teacher, This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now the law Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with a finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin... Throw a stone first. At once more, and once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus, uh, sorry, dyslexia. Yay. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So, Memorial Day of this year, I was in front of my house waiting for the annual Juniata Memorial Day Parade. And as I'm sitting there waiting, I look across the street and I see a guy that I knew that I haven't seen in a long time. So, I run across the street to say, hey, catch up a little bit. And as we begin to talk, he begins to tell me about how his 12-year-old daughter is one of only two people in her class who do not identify as a part of the LBGTQ community. And as he begins to talk about this, he gets more and more frustrated at the fact that his daughter is exposed to this culture and this community on a regular, daily basis. And as he is getting more and more agitated, I realize I'm not getting as agitated as he is because I see a different problem. What I begin to see is kids, 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds, who are beginning to struggle with their identity. And what they begin to do, what I see, is they begin to look for a community that will accept them for exactly who they are. And so they find this community that is one of the most accepting communities in our culture today. 
And as I begin to think about this, I wonder, why isn't anybody showing them that in the kingdom of God, they can be accepted, they can have worth, they can have community, they can have identity? And I begin to wonder, who is coming alongside these kids as they are suffering in these things? So as this conversation with this man progresses, all these thoughts are running through my head. And I begin to nod and smile when I need to, and I frown and shake my head when appropriate. And I'm continually asking myself, why isn't anyone coming alongside these kids as they suffer? Why isn't anyone showing them that in the Christ they have identity, community, and worth? to the fullest extent. And through this, I had a seed planted in my mind that I wrestled with all summer, simply asking the question, what is compassion? So when I met with Derek um, to talk about me filling in this week, he said, I just want you to simply come up with a word for the year. I don't know if this is a year in review or a year forward, I work with college students, so I'm in the middle of my year right now. So this is just the word for this semester, this year, this school year. It'll start again in August. But with our students, uh, with my students, what I tend to do is I come up with a theme for the year. And the theme for this year is compassion. Something that we focus on, something that we rally around, something that we try to understand and continually move towards. Now, with this word, we have in our culture today this understanding of what compassion is. And often we understand compassion as pity, sympathy, or concern for others. Usually it's an idea of some, seeing someone in a hard time and giving them thoughts and prayers. I asked one of my students, or I asked all my students, I said, define compassion for me. And I got a bunch of different answers, but one of them gave me the answer, it's seeing your friend in a hard time and simply saying, oh, I feel for you, man. To get nerdy for a few minutes, because I'm a nerd, um, the word compassion is made up of the prefix com and the root word passion. Now, to fully understand the word, we have to break these down and understand them a little bit more. In today's context and culture, we have this specific understanding of compassion, but over the centuries, it's changed into what we now understand it as. An example of how we understand it. In 2017, Star Wars The Last Jedi came out, and the entire fan base was rent in two. Fights were happening in the movie theaters, on the internet, around the dinner table over this movie. And at that time, I became a Last Jedi apologist. If you have a problem with that, you can see me in the parking lot afterwards. As time went on, I would have more and more conversations with people about this movie. Defending it, saying why I believe it's a good movie and a good Star Wars movie and a good entry into the Skywalker saga. And after we would get done with this argument, Usually the people would look at me and say, wow, you're really passionate about this movie. 
Typically how we understand passion today or being passionate about something is simply having strong emotion towards. At the beginning of this semester, our ministry gathered together and we watched 2004's The Passion of the Christ. Now, the story is 2,000 years old. The movie is almost two decades old. I'm going to spoil it for you, but hopefully not, because the story is old. The movie depicts the last hours of Jesus' life. It begins in the Garden of Gethsemane, where we see in John 17 him praying his high priestly prayer. And we can see the anguish on his face and the concern and the fear in what is coming. And it begin, the movie begins to progress through those final hours. It goes through his arrests and his trials and his abuses, culminating in his crucifixion and his death. And when I sat down with my students to watch this, I told them at the very beginning, what I want you to do is I want you to watch this movie and look to answer this question. Where is the passion? The movie is called Passion of the Christ. There is passion here. Where is it? At the end of the movie, I asked them again, I want you to reflect on this for the next couple of days before we meet. Where is the passion? The next week, we gathered together for our first official Bible study, and I asked this question again, and we begin to discuss it. The answers that I receive circled around how Jesus was focusing on us, and how he was focusing on God, and how he was passionate about healing our relationship. Because of his passion for us and for God, Jesus suffered through the torture, the beatings, and the betrayals that he was confronted with. After much conversation and a lot of listening to my students, they concluded that the passion for God and us drove Jesus' actions throughout the entire movie in the biblical narrative that we find. Then I asked somebody to pull out his phone, because we can do that when we engage with the Bible. We can pull out our phone and look up things we don't understand. It's okay, you can do that. And I asked him to Google the definition of passion. And what he came back with was this. Strong and barely controllable emotion. A state or outburst of strong emotion. The suffering and death of Jesus a narrative of the passion from any of the Gospels. Now, to yada yada really quick, because I don't want to get into Latin and Greek and whatever else, because no one cares. The word that we get, passion, what it originally meant was simply to suffer, suffering. And so when we talk about the passion of the Christ and we talk about the, what are called the passion narratives in the Gospels, we are looking at the time from the Last Supper to the crucifixion, death, and burial of Jesus. These are the passion narratives. With this understanding of passion, these are when Jesus suffered. The suffering of Jesus is a way that we could describe that. Just a simple overview of these passion narratives 
shows us the sufferings of Jesus. They're not just physical, but they're emotional and they're mental and they're spiritual as well. And we can see Jesus, God himself, truly understands suffering. He comes to know what it looks like to anticipate suffering. He's betrayed by one of his best friends and then abandoned by the other 11, being left alone. He's taken from shady trial to shady trial to shady trial, having people come up against him, lying about him, who just a week previously were celebrating him and laying palm branches before him, announcing the coming of the king of Israel. Now, I'm squeamish, so I'll skip over this, but he endures physical punishment greater than what we can even imagine. And then is forced to carry a tree not a short distance up a mountain to endure more physical punishment and be tortured to death. The deeper we go into this, the more we see the truth the writer of Hebrews shares where he says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our sufferings, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So now we have this understanding of passion or suffering. But to understand the word compassion, we need to understand the prefix. Com simply means together or with. And so when we take these two ideas, together or with, and suffering, and bring them together, the word compassion, we should understand as suffering with, or suffering together. But the weird thing is, when I look at Jesus having compassion on people in Scripture, he's not necessarily suffering with them. I see something else. When I look at John 4 and the woman at the well, I see a woman suffering in a way who is isolated and has a bad reputation in her town. But I don't see Jesus having those with her. I believe he experiences those, and we see that later in that very chapter. But he doesn't suffer with her in that moment. Instead of suffering with her, he comes alongside her in her suffering and gives her hope, love, and acceptance. In Luke 19, Jesus is in the house of Zacchaeus, the tax collector. And he doesn't join Zacchaeus in the suffering of working for the enemy, being despised by everyone around him, being abused and isolated. But instead, I see Jesus coming alongside Zacchaeus as he is insulted in his own home and stepping up as his defender, his advocate, coming alongside him in that moment as opposed to taking his place. In John 8, Jesus doesn't stand in front of the woman caught in adultery, telling those around to stone him in her place. He doesn't join her in that suffering, that terror, and that fear, and that shame. 
Instead, he sits in the dirt in the muck with her, letting her know you are not alone in this. And when she is facing death, he shows her life. What I want to propose to you today is an understanding of compassion as this, coming alongside others in their suffering. Not trying to fix the problem, not trying to drag them out of the situation they find themselves in, but simply being with them, sitting in the dirt and the muck of life, letting them know you are not alone. We are here for you. We still love you. We're going to get through this together. Maybe this can give them hope. Maybe this can share the life abundant that Jesus promises. But we let them know that they are loved through all of it. They don't have to weather it alone. A part of this conversation and something I often reference is the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And so I want us to have an understanding of what that looks like as we progress in this conversation and this understanding of compassion. I think it's really important for us to understand this in order to make sense of the effects of compassion. Looking at scripture in the very beginning, we see the garden environment. And what I see there is simply people in unity with God. And then the fall happens and that unity is broken. But then when we flip to the back of the book and we see revelation and we see what John is being shown, we see again unity with God. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. In the original environment of the garden, and in the new heaven and new earth, what we see is unity with God. When Jesus begins his ministry, the first thing he proclaims is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is here and it is now. The reign and proximity of God is near to us. And then in Matthew's account, Jesus jumps into what we understand as the Sermon on the Mount, describing what the kingdom of God looks like and how it's to be ushered in how we, as his people, are to share the kingdom of God with those around us. Being helpful to our communities, not sending out of anger, seeing others with inherent worth, remaining committed to others, being people of our word, serving instead of retaliating, loving those who are against us. All of these are the core ideas that we just simply see in Matthew 5. When we engage in these practices, two things happen. One, we see, as John writes in Revelation, neither will there be mourning 
nor crying, nor pain anymore. We are actively creating a culture and society where we are making these things happen. We are acting in ways that will keep people from mourning and crying and pain. And the second thing that we see happen is we see us naturally being brought beside others who are acting out of their pain and suffering. Something that is really central to who I am and how I try to engage with people. Um, From C.S. Lewis, he writes, nobody does evil for the sake of evil. Everyone does evil for the sake of trying to maintain these good things that God desires to give us. But then we just get a perverted version of it. And so what we regularly see are people acting out of desires that God has placed in them in the wrong ways to try to achieve a lesser version of what God desires to give them. And when they do that, we see crying, we see pain, and we see mourning. But when we trust in the promises of God and we live this kingdom lifestyle, these things begin to go away. In 2 Corinthians 5, we've been told that we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. Not the ministry of healing, not the ministry of getting people baptized or in the church or getting people to pray or to read their Bible, but the ministry of reconciliation. We see across all of Scripture this concept that we are in relationship with God, that we were in unity with Him, and then that relationship broke. Reconciliation is the bringing back together of that broken relationship. This is what we are to be ministers of. Through Jesus, And in the kingdom he brings, we can see unity with God again. The kingdom of God is at hand. Unity with God is at hand. We become his temple, his dwelling place. The dwelling place of God is with man. And this leads to God's great plan. In Ephesians, Paul writes, In Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things with him, things in heaven and things on earth as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things with him, things of heaven and things of earth. I believe that when we see compassion, we see the kingdom of God. We see reconciliation between us and God. I believe we see heaven come and that God's dwelling place is with us. My freshman year of college, I was away from home for the longest I have ever been. I'm originally from Columbus, Ohio. Go Bucks. Um, 
I went to school in Eastern Kentucky at a small private Christian school. And over my childhood, I'd spend a few weeks here and there at my grandma's house with my cousins, that type of stuff, go for weeks of camp. But this is the longest I've been away from home for an extended period of time. And while there, um, I was really excited because I was able to get a fresh start. I had a really rough couple of years in high school. This was a chance for me to get away from all of that and start new. And after being there for a while, I began to see these old patterns of living coming back up. I could see my depression starting to come back. I could start to see me living in the ways that I had in the past. I made a new friend, and I shared some of this with her. And she proceeds to call me at 12 a.m. on a Friday. And so I share for about 20 minutes about what I'm experiencing, what I'm going through, And then she begins to talk and talk and talk and talk for four hours straight. I did not get a word in for four hours. Now, this was 2009, so I was praying that my phone would die. But this was before smartphones, so I didn't drain the battery looking at Facebook all day. So my phone didn't die. And I listened to this girl work herself up in some of the most convoluted mental gymnastics I have ever heard someone get through. Talking about how she has it so much worse. Talking about how I just need to change my mind about things. Talking about all these other people who I should go to because they're so much smarter than I am. Just wrapping herself around and around and around for four hours. And I grew up in a household where you don't interrupt somebody when they're speaking. So I didn't say anything because she didn't take a breath. And after those four hours, it concludes with her simply saying, I think you need a perspective shift. And you should talk to this person because I think this person's going to get you through it. Someone who I knew personally that wasn't going to be any help in this area. And after four hours, it's 4.20 in the morning, I go, okay, thanks. First two words I said in four hours, and I hang up the phone. That was the most unhelpful four hours of my life as I was in this place of suffering. Compare that to a couple years later, where I was dealing with a really bad breakup. I text my friend and just simply say, hey, man, I really need you right now. And he sat with me on a bench for two hours in silence. The only words that were said were, man, I'm really sorry. This really sucks. And that was some of the best ministry I've ever had done. Just for someone to sit with me in the muck and say, you are not alone in this. In that moment, I experienced the kingdom of heaven. Many of you know, over the summer, my family and I had a rough couple of months. That culminated with me being diagnosed with Lyme's disease in July. During that time, I was incredibly fatigued, where I couldn't stand up out of a chair without being winded. I couldn't do dishes. I couldn't mow the lawn. I couldn't help out with the kids. I couldn't do anything. Because simply walking from the chair 
into the kitchen to get a drink of water, I was exhausted. I could barely eat. I couldn't drink. And then this pain began, this intense pain in the back of my head that then presented with bilateral Bell's palsy or complete facial paralysis. Mind you, I'm basically at my house by myself while all this is happening because my wife took the kids out to go camping to give me some time to rest. And she comes home, and then Rachel is essentially single parenting it. My face doesn't work, my body doesn't work, I'm tired all the time, and I hurt really bad. And I'm somebody who finds their worth through work, through doing. And I couldn't do that. So not only was I worthless, I felt worthless, and I felt terrible. But something happened during that time. This church came around us and served us in that time. We had people bring us meals. We had people bring us gift cards and flowers. We had people come and mow our lawn for us. And as someone who goes, well, you did this thing, so now I got to do this thing for you, and I got to pay you back, and I got to, I got to, I got to, I couldn't do any of it. But instead, you simply came alongside us during that time in our suffering. Hey, we got you on this. It's all right. We'll take care of you. In those moments, in those weeks, in that two-month period, because of you and your compassion towards us, your coming alongside us in our suffering, we experienced the kingdom of God. As I read the Gospels, I see Jesus declaring the coming of the kingdom of heaven. The culture and society that we see in the original garden environment, the description of heaven in Revelation 21. This is what God, what Jesus himself ushers in. He displays and he teaches us how to bring it. And at the root, I see in his teachings and examples, compassion. Throughout all the Gospels, what I regularly see is Jesus coming alongside others in their suffering and displaying to them hope and life and reconciliation with God, displaying to them heaven itself. He comes alongside them in their alienation, their poverty, their brokenness, their pain and their sickness, giving them hope, healing, and love. Through the compassion of Jesus, I see people experiencing the kingdom of God. We see people standing up from their mats for the first time in years. Women isolated from their communities and their culture as a whole, coming in as heralds of hope. People who are facing death, standing up in life. People hated and despised by their own, turning their life to giving and service. This is what it looks like to experience the kingdom of God. But more than that, 
I think this is how we're to share the kingdom of God. What does it look like to sit with a complete stranger who is suffering through chemo simply to give them some company? What does it look like to come alongside a single mom with four kids trying to load groceries into her car and simply giving her five minutes to help her do that? What does it look like instead of giving someone begrudgingly an hour of your expensive time instead cheerfully giving them two? These are ways that we can share the kingdom of God. And these are coming alongside people in their suffering, displaying to them, sharing with them compassion. To simply sit with them in the dirt, in the muck of life, and let them know that during this terrible time, they are not alone. Maybe, just maybe, these can bring about the kingdom of heaven. Maybe we can show this town, our workplaces, our schools, our communities, what it looks like to live in the light of God. Thank you again for choosing the Vineyard Altoona podcast. We're so excited to see how God will release his kingdom in and through you today for the glory of Jesus Christ. With this, be blessed, and we'll see you next time.